Welcome everyone to Serving on Nonprofits is Good Business. This is our final teleconference in our eight-part teleseries on enhancing board service provided by the Nonprofit Affinity Group of SAC, the Society for Advancement of Consulting. Hi, I'm Kathy Kingston, President of Kingston Auction Company, one of your instructors in the teleseminar series. I'll be serving as your host, and our goal is to share extensive knowledge about how to help nonprofits and enhance your contributions as a board member, and in turn, add value to your business. And we're delighted to collaborate with fellow members of SAC and the Allen Weiss community. So to give everyone on the call an idea of flow, our interviewer, Linda Popke, will spend about 50 minutes interviewing Alan Weiss and his perspective on serving on boards. And uh, we will be feeding questions from you, so if you do have them as you're listening in, you can send them to Karen Eber Davis, and here is her email address. It's K-A-R-E-N at K-E-D as in dog, consult, C-O-N-S as in Sam, U-L-T, dot com. So today, I'm excited about Alan's perspective on serving on a board, and I'd like to introduce today's interviewer and presenter. Linda Popke is president of Leverage to Market Associates, an award-winning strategic marketing consultant who transforms organizations through powerful marketing programs serving a broad range of clients, including nonprofit organizations. And our presenter today is Dr. Alan Weiss. He's the founder of Summit Consulting Group and the Society for Advancement of Consulting. He's the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award of the American Press Institute and an inductee into the Professional Speaking Hall of Fame, and the author of more than 500 articles and 44 books on consulting-related topics. He served on numerous boards over the last three decades, including the Trinity Repertory Company, a Tony Award-winning New England Regional Theater, Festival Ballet, and chaired the Newport International Film Festival. His career is taking him to 59 countries and 49 states. Recipient of many prestigious awards, the New York Post called him one of the most highly regarded independent consultants in America. He once appeared on the popular American TV game show Jeopardy, where he lost badly in the first round to a dancing waiter from Iowa. Alan, we are delighted to have you here with us today. And Linda, I'll turn it over to you to start. Thank you. And Alan, again, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Happy to be here. Okay. Thank you. So you've been on a number of boards over the last three decades. Any idea how many different boards you've served on? Oh, geez, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't sort of collect things anymore, but okay. I've probably served on a dozen or so, and my wife's been on probably uh, six or eight herself. Okay. So if you can go back and think back to the early days when you first got involved with board service, what do you think was the impetus for joining that first board? What was it you were trying to accomplish, and why did you do that? Well, I think the very first time, there's probably an ego uh, component. You know, I was just delighted that somebody asked me to serve on a board. Probably, I don't think I could have believed it. And I think I was also under the um, the uh, illusion that if you were on a board, you know, you'd see really uh, governance in action and top board work in action, and uh, you'd get to influence the organization and so forth. So I, I had sort of these idealistic hopes. Uh, but after that, I, I think my motivation was more, uh, much more from the side of, do I believe in this organization? Uh, is it something to which I want to contribute? Does it have a business repercussion for me in terms of uh, my body of work or people knowing me or my own personal development and so forth and so on? 
So you say that, that you were under this illusion of being able to make some change. Talk to me a little bit about that. It, is it really something that being on a board you can't affect change in an organization, or, or does it depend on the board? Well, it depends on the board and on the dynamics. Now, we're strictly talking here about nonprofit boards. We're not talking about for-profit boards. Absolutely, right. We'll so stay away from HP and all those folks. Yes, okay. I want to differentiate that right away because I've consulted with a lot of for-profit boards. But on the nonprofit side, what you have more times than not are people on the board who are there for their name value, are there because they can contribute a lot of money, are there for political reasons, you know, they're the mayor's assistant or they're the, um, the school board chair or something like that, uh, and you have relatively few people uh, who really have the, qual the, uh, the competence and the ability to be on the board. I remember one woman on the board of Trinity Rep, whom Kathy mentioned earlier, the, the theater, uh, for two entire years she never showed up for one meeting. Uh, and I found out that she was on about uh, 12 different boards. Uh, she was Hispanic, and everyone wanted this Hispanic representation at the time, and she was also a woman. You know, it's perfect. You know, I often thought we should break her leg, and it, therefore, if she was also <laughs> handicapped, you know, we'd, we'd have the triple, the, the trifecta. Uh, and so after two years, we, we finally uh, convinced the chair that she needed to be let go. You know, the governance committee said she needed to be let go. But she made some kind of appeal to the chair, and he kept her on for still another year. Uh, and all she did was collect board memberships like, like stamps. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's awful because uh, it, I guess it looks good on her resume, but it's terrible for the organization. So these are the kinds of people you often find on boards. And some of them, you know, um, uh, and listeners might not like this, but, but some of them are not as interesting as sitting and talking to a redwood tree. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so it, it, it's difficult to kind of uh, build a rapport with some of these folks depending on why they're there and what their background is? Yeah, you have two or three problems. One problem is that you have some very um, honest, earnest, uh, committed people who don't have the competence to be on the board. In other words, they should be in the volunteer group, they should be in the benefactor group, they should be somewhere else, but they shouldn't be on the board because they don't know anything about management or finance or legal or ethics or so forth. Uh, but they're nice people, but they shouldn't be there. Then you have people who are there because they want to exert uh, personal influence. They want to uh, engage in their own ego aggrandizement or launch some kind of personal uh, need. And so I served on a, a separate theater up here in New England, uh, and I left that board because they were just committed to building an art center uh, and purchasing this big armory and building some kind of center for New England instead of just focusing on their theater. And um, I told them they were crazy, and they, I, finally I left the board because it was disruptive. And sure enough, uh, earlier this year, uh, the, the uh, armory, the art center, went bankrupt. Uh, and I said to them, I wrote them a letter, and I said, you know, I would never tell you how to mount a production or direct it or act in it. How the hell could you tell me about strategy? You know, where do you get off doing that? So, you know, I, I had to engage in a told you so. And so you find these, these people on boards. And so I, I would tell the listeners today, that I'm not trying to paint an unduly pessimistic picture. However, you have to be so committed to the cause that you're willing to put up with these kinds of log jams and landmines and pitfalls because the exception is the well-run, well-managed, uh, highly attentive board. But the rule is what I just described. Yeah. So how uh, that's interesting. So how important is this passion for, for the mission of the board or, or what the organization is about? Is that paramount to everything else when, when you consider joining a board? Yeah, I think it is because if you simply join because, you know, you have every intention of doing your best and, and, and volunteering and giving your best effort, but you're doing it mainly to network and meet people and so forth, you're going to be very frustrated because 
Uh, I've served in everything. I'm, in a, I'm a member of the parish council of my church right now, which is sort of a board. I've served on a shelter for battered women. I've served on you know these these larger nonprofits. Uh, and the fact is that there is so much frustration and so much of a time drain. I mean, it's really a, a time demand that uh, you need to be committed because that's so that you need to be passionate about the cause. Otherwise, you you resent it. It becomes onerous. And so um, uh, it's a very important aspect of the quality of your own life. I mean, you don't mind so much if you're at a meeting. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these boards are able to take 30 minutes of high-quality stuff and stuff it into three hours. And so <laughs> you don't mind being there at 10 at night, uh, you know, or, or 8 in the morning uh, if you're committed to the cause. But otherwise, it, it could drive you to homicide. I can see that. Uh, so how do you decide, besides being committed to the cause, how do you decide what boards to join? What is that you look at? when you make the decision whether or not you're going to join a nonprofit board? Well, I ask myself, you know, is, is the cause uh, aligned with my value, um, my values and beliefs? Uh, number two, uh, are there people on the board whom I respect uh, and who I think can uh, make a difference? If it's an arts board, I want to make sure that the artistic director, not so much the managing director, but the artistic director is somebody I have a lot of faith in and I feel good about because that's the product side, and I cannot influence the product side. I can influence the business side. Uh, so with an artistic board, I make that determination. Uh, and then for non-artistic boards, you know, charities and things like that, uh, I ask myself how well positioned they are in the community because all of this, Linda, uh, underlying everything you and I will speak about, you know, for the next uh, 52 minutes uh, is funding. And uh, right. if you want to obtain funding, you have to be well positioned, have aggressive people, know how to fundraise, have development people, and so forth. Because especially in the last, I would say, five to seven years, even before the, the latest recession, uh, government funding has dried up, corporate funding has been reduced significantly, and it's individual funding today in nonprofits more than ever before that constitutes the, uh, the main source of, um, of resources. And consequently, you have to be prepared to go out after it because it's highly competitive. So would you say that, that if funding is so critical to, um, to, to a nonprofit organization's survival, is helping to, to get funding, is that your most important job as a board member? Is it setting the strategy to help others go out and get funding? What do you think is really the most critical thing you do on a board? Well, the most critical thing is governance. And the okay. fact is that fundraising is simply one part of that. Uh, many boards... Uh, subsume themselves in fundraising, and consequently there's no governance. By that I mean there's no strategy in place. Uh, see, people love me on boards because I'm a strategist. Uh, there's no evaluation of senior management. Uh, there's no community outreach. Uh, there's no proper marketing or so forth and so on. So, uh, and they're just subsumed every day of their lives fundraising. Fundraising has to be one part of it, uh, but it can't be everything, and governance includes fundraising. But you should have, I always advocate, that don't put people on boards just because they give you a lot of money. Create a separate group, call it a, an advisory group or a trustee group or something for the big donors. Have them meet once a quarter, treat them well, you know, get them into rehearsals or whatever you want to do. But, but just because somebody gives you a lot of money doesn't mean they're appropriate for the board. Uh, I do believe, however, and let me state this clearly, that everyone who decides to serve on a board has a financial obligation. Uh, when I chaired the Newport um, uh, International Film Festival, when I served on Trinity as the, the chair of the strategy committee and so forth, I demanded that every board member kick in. Now, in the, in the case of the film festival, it was 5000 a year. In the case of Trinity, it was 7500 a year. Uh, and my feeling is, and this is reflected in a lot of literature you'll see on nonprofits, if you want to try to raise money from the public and foundations and so forth, you'd better show that the board is behind it. A lot of people say, yes, but you want some people on the board who can't afford to do that. And I say, right, 
the, the, the principle here is pay it or raise it. And so if you can't afford 7500 go out and raise it among friends or do what you have to do. Uh, but too many times you have board members sitting there who aren't personally invested, and I feel that's absolutely unethical. So do you find that it, it's difficult to get boards to agree to that? I mean, how many times do you, do you wind up in a situation where they say, hey, we're giving our, our time, we don't have to give our money as well? Is that one of the decisions as to whether or not you would join a board? Well, it is difficult. You know, when I was chairman, uh, I just demanded it. When I was in a position of demand that I did. Uh, but a lot of times you have vested interests on there. These, these are people who want to serve on the board, have it on their resume, get their ticket stamp, but they don't want to give money. They want to help raise money from others, but they don't want to give money, and it's not right. Because, you see, if you're asking me for money for your cause, you need to have skin in the game. It is unethical for you to ask me to put my money behind your cause if you haven't done so yourself. And please don't tell me that you're putting in your time instead. I don't buy that for a minute. So I think you have a financial obligation. And depending upon the board and the size of it, it might be $1,000 or 5000 I mean, I, I, I'm guessing here, but I believe if, if you probably joined the board of Lincoln Center in New York, uh, you probably have to be good for a quarter million a year. Yeah, that, that would make sense, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of, um, of, of the typical responsibilities that you're being asked to take on as a board member, besides the attending the meetings, attending the functions, uh, financially um, being uh, either donating the, the uh, either pay it or raise it what are the other typical re responsibilities that you find as a as a board member that are being asked of you well you have to be an advocate uh, you have to uh, build the reputation and the uh, knowledge of the place in the community uh, I think secondly uh, you have to provide contacts you know we had four or five criteria for board membership at a couple of places you know one was personal financial giving a second was bringing expertise to the board that it needed uh, but a third was having contacts whom you could introduce to the uh, organization. So uh, I think that's another obligation you have. And then I think uh, still another is that you need to provide honest and candid feedback. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I still meet with the executive director of uh, Trinity up here once a month. I'm a major contributor. I left the board because I was just too frustrated and I served for six or seven years. But he, he meets with me one-on-one. -on -one. We talk theater. We have a great time. And I give him feedback and we discuss new initiatives. And now, I was just at a, at a performance uh, Saturday night there and my wife and I walked out at intermission. And, it, you know, it's become more of a, an employment agency for the repertory company than the creator of uh, new art or the resurrection of classic art. And I think that's a mistake in its mission. And I have to tell him that. And that's what board members have to do. Do you find that that's kind of unique, that a lot of board members don't want to raise those types of issues or rock the boat? That's right. And that's why, that's why boards are so poor. That's because yeah. they, either they have vested interests. You know, I've, I've been interviewed recently on boards in Florida of blood banks where the executive director is making, you know, three, $400,000, and members of the board are doing six figures in business with the blood bank. Uh, wow. And you find a lot of that crap going on. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago, it was in the last decade, that the uh, CEO of the United Way, one of the largest charities uh, in the country, was fired, and he was making something like 650000 a year. Uh, I was on the board of a shelter for battered women here in Rhode Island as part of my uh, PhD in psychology, uh, and I had a... Um, I had a real commitment, and I, I really, I mean, it's a strange word, but I mean, I enjoyed serving there. This was a w wonderful cause, and I learned so much because battered women, you know, cross economic uh, boundaries and so forth. But finally, I had to leave it because we changed chairs, and, you know, one of the board members said, you know, I, I want to provide this kind of service, you know, it'll be $125,000, and the chairman, who was a lawyer, 
said, of course. And two of us stood up and said, what are you talking about? You can't do business as a board member with the organization. And the lawyer said to me, why do you think we're on this board? And so the two of us just got up and left. So that stuff is much more common than anybody imagines, and it's heinous. So, and, and I just want to, to underline that again for, for everybody listening, that um, in, in your opinion, which I agree with, that, that it just is totally unethical to be on a board to solicit business from the board while you're on the board. It's just a total conflict of interest. It's a total conflict of interest, and people dance around it, and they do these lateral arabesques, and I had this long interview with a reporter was saying, well, here's what the board's saying. They're saying that why would you deny the quality that people can bring just because they're on the board? And my response is, if they have quality to bring, why is it so important they be on the board? They need to make a choice. You serve on the board and do things pro bono, or you get off the board and sell things to the organization. But why do you have to, why do you have to also have a board seat? Uh, it's just selfishness. It's greed. I agree. So, so that was one one uh, opportunity or one situation where you actually resigned from a board before your term was over. Has that ever happened in other situations? And what would make you resign in the middle of a board term? Well, I've resigned from three boards. Uh, that that was one instance. Another was uh, the instance I talked about where I was being disruptive because I disagreed with the strategy. And even though the strategy was set before I became a board member, I felt it was. Uh, incumbent upon me and my ethical responsibility to tell them they were going the wrong way because there wasn't a strategist sitting in the room except for me. Uh, so I resigned from that board when it became disruptive. And then I resigned from the Trinity Rep Board because uh, I had served on it for six or seven years. And they, you know, they probably would have kept reappointing me forever. Hell, I was on the governance committee. I could have reappointed myself forever. But um, I decided that enough was enough. So I, I think that you need new blood. I mean, on this battered women board I talked about, I looked across at this one woman and I said to her, she had, she had a ridiculous idea. I said, how long have you been on this board? She said, 14 years. I said, that's part of the problem. So boards need mm -hmm. term limits. You know, uh, For example, my wife was on the board of a, of a charter school. They had a term limit, and that's very intelligent. You can come back after you take a sabbatical. The ballet had term limits at one point. So I, I think that um, you, you need fresh blood, and you need to rotate things. And too many times you have people on these boards who have grown roots. Yeah, and they're not going anywhere. They're planted. Yep. Yeah. So in terms of, of coming on to a new board, if you could recommend to those of us who are listening who are probably doing this maybe for the first time, what would you recommend in terms of how, what questions to ask to, to consider whether or not this is the right board to serve on and, and what to look for in advance before joining up and, and finding out that mm, this may not be the right place? Well, if you're considering joining, I would suggest five or six questions that are absolutely critical. One is, what are the time commitments? What are the minimal time commitments you expect of a board member? Because the board might meet quarterly, it might meet monthly, but more importantly, some boards demand that you serve on subcommittees. And the subcommittee could, we, could meet twice a month for all you know. So you have to be very careful about that. Not that uh, you should necessarily run away, but you have to match the time commitment with what you're prepared to invest, given your family situation, your business situation, your personal interests, and so on. So number one is, what's the minimal time commitment? Number two, what's the minimal financial commitment? Uh, you want to know what they expect of you financially, uh, and you want to know that early so you can make the appropriate allocations. In other words, if they expect $5,000 from you, you might not want to write out a $5,000 check, but you might want to write out 10 $500 checks over 10 months. So what's that allocation? Uh, number three, do they operate according to Robert's Rules of Order? Uh, most boards don't, and that's very problematic because the conversations just go all over the place. Uh, and uh, you could have a, a very difficult time and even a legal problem uh, getting things done, which leads me to point number four. 
is there director's liability insurance? Most organizations provide it, but not all. It can be expensive. If there is director's liability insurance, if you're sued, let's say by an employee or by a customer or by a member or by anyone, you have a firewall. But if there's not, they can go after you individually for malfeasance, for uh, all kinds of things. Very, very important, especially if you've got a fairly large operation or there's any kind of danger. You know, People are always falling down steps. Employees uh, uh, claim that they were released inappropriately and so forth and so on. Uh, number five, I would ask, if you didn't know, uh, who is the chair, who runs the meetings, and how are they run? Uh, that's very important because when you boil it all away, uh, it's all about leadership. The, the fundraising and everything else, uh, the, the, um, the uh, focus of the energy invested will be dependent on how the leadership can move the organization. And that's vested in the person running the meeting. It's usually the chair. If the managing director is running the meeting, you have a problem because you have a direct conflict of interest. One of the problems with this other theater group is although we had a chair, the managing director really influenced the meetings and she had a personal agenda. So uh, then the final thing I would ask, uh, and, and all of these questions are essential, by the way. They're no special order, but they're all mandatory. Uh, the final question I would ask is this. Uh, I want to know what your financial condition is. I want to know if you're solvent. I want to know what the outstanding indebtedness is. I want to know uh, in the last several years if you've met your plan on both the revenue and cost side uh, and exactly what that looks like. These are public documents. So it can't be a question of they're private or hidden. You have to file these publicly with a nonprofit. Uh, and so they need to be made available. So you need to see if they've been successful in their forecasting, uh, if they've been successful in keeping expenses down. Uh, you might find that uh, you know they tell you, oh, we're operating just uh, great, but they've got a $400,000 balloon payment due the bank next year. Uh, all those things you want to know, again, because you have to be careful about your own liability. So in terms of, you know, I, I just want to reiterate this for everybody listening because Ellen always talks about, you know, you want to learn 1% a day to be better in, what, 72 days or something? 70 days, you're um, good. Yeah, so I, I, that's my 1% right there. I think if those of you listening, listen only, <laughs> go back and listen to those five or six points. Um, it's, it, that's huge because uh, I think many of us, and myself included, have gone in and, and been passionate about an organization and been kind of um, suckered into it, in a sense, you know, the whole mission of it, and signed up for a board and not asked those questions, and then found, um, found all kinds of, of hornet's nests that existed afterwards. So thank you for that. So uh, let me ask you something. In terms of um, when you've been asked to join a board, um, what, are, what are kind of the best and worst ways that people have approached you? What could you say as, as what really um, appealed to you? Were people telling you those things in advance? Were they telling you about their mission? If we were trying to recruit new board members, what's the best way to go out and do that? Well, for my purposes, uh, I would usually be approached, often be approached by someone who is on the board. But then I would want to meet the artistic director, if it's a, an arts group, and the managing director or executive director. Uh, uh, and I'd want to meet those people because these are the people who are really running the show, and I want to see if I'm simpatico with them. Uh, and if that requires two or three interviews and so forth, that's fine. I mean, the interview process should be significant. It should be equivalent to hiring somebody at a private business. You don't want to make this decision on either side lightly. So one thing that's attractive is meeting the key people early and ascertaining how important the board is to them, how important you are to them, uh, how important the whole process is to them. A lot of these people just want a rubber stamp board and don't want to be you know, bothered. Uh, another thing that's attractive is that uh, they're very transparent. 
Uh, and so they talk about not only you know their cause, which is always great, but also uh, their problems. Uh, if they have financial problems, if they have uh, membership problems, if they have volunteer problems, if they have attendance problems, uh, but here's the issue we're facing, uh, and here's why uh, we need the best thinking we can to take care of this. So with that kind of transparency, you can make some legitimate decisions. And then the final thing is, you know, what's the flexibility? Uh, is there, uh, I, I talked before about those five or six essential questions, one of which was the time commitment. Uh, you know, I travel. So if I miss, I never join the Rotary in my life. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I'll get cards and letters. But the time commitment they demand is ridiculous. I just can't do that. I'm not interested, despite the fact I think Rotary is a fine organization. And so if you miss two board meetings, are they going to put you on suspension to throw you off? Because if that's the case, I'll tell you right now, I can't join. That's good. That's important to know. So in terms of, um, of, of helping people once they've joined the board, if you're new to the organization, what kind of education should you expect to get from the board or should you even ask for it to come up to speed? Yeah, you should. Every good board has an orientation, uh, every good one, which means probably 15% of them. But uh, that means there should be a manual they give you which has the uh, history of the organization. Uh, it has the uh, board sort of operating procedures. It has the financial reports and so forth and so on. A board member... Uh, or a staff member uh, should sit with you uh, and uh, take you through some of the necessary elements so that you can acquaint yourself. Uh, you know, you might have questions such as, you know, the equivalent of where's the men's room? In other words, um, where does the board meet? Um, what's the um, typical duration of a meeting? And so forth and so on. Uh, then you should also get a, a copy of Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, and you should acquaint yourself with how that works, how a motion is made, how it's seconded, how it's voted on. Uh, you know, for example, I've sat in some meetings where I would simply say, call the question. Uh, and I've sat in meetings where I'd say, wait a minute, this, this, has been, um, this has been moved and seconded. We can't be talking about that right now. We have to be talking about this right now. And I'll reorient the discussion. Uh, but too, too often it's informal, you know. So you should acquaint yourself with Robert's Rules of Order. And then uh, I would make it a point uh, to get to meet as many of the other board members informally as I could. And that means that you know, maybe they show up for, um, for coffee uh, a half an hour early. Uh, a lot of these board members, boards, when they meet in the evening, provide sort of a, a buffet uh, kind of dinner, you know, sandwiches and things. But I, I would try to at least meet the other board members on a casual basis and, and get to know who my colleagues are if I didn't know them before. As a rule, if you're going to join a board, it's extraordinarily helpful to know one or two people on it before you get on it. Okay. So what do you do? So meeting, meeting a little bit casually before, how much do you do in terms of getting to know your colleagues sufficiently well to build that kind of sense of trust and respect? How much of that do you do outside of the board meetings? If they're not well, I, people you I wouldn't want to pester them. I mean, I wouldn't call them and say, I'm a new board member. I'd like to pick your brain for 15 minutes. I mean, that's a pain in the neck. But um, if there's not a formal orientation, I would find some place, some time, some opportunity to be with them. And, you know, whether that's before a meeting or after a meeting or it's during a meal or a break during a meeting uh, or if it's during a production of the company or if it's during some kind of, you know, publicity uh, event, whatever it is, I would just try to, you know, chat with them informally and, and get to know who's who and what's what. I would submit that after your first regular meeting, uh, you'll have a, a very good idea of uh, who people are who influence the most uh, who people are, who you want to make a point to get to know better, and so on and so forth. Great. So in terms of, of um, you talked about a little bit earlier that one of the things that um, your responsibilities include is to be an organizational advocate. 
how, or any tips that you could give us as to how a new board member can fulfill that responsibility and be an organizational advocate for their board? A lot of different ways. For example, uh, think of the media. Um, you can uh, use social networks, social platforms, uh, to talk about what you're doing and to talk about the organization. You, know, you can mention on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or whatever you tend to use the fact that there's a fundraiser or that there's a production or that there's a need. You know, some of these organizations need things as simple as printers. And for people like you and me, Linda, you know, who are constantly upgrading our equipment, it's easy to give an old printer away that still works perfectly well for their purposes. And, you know, there's a small tax advantage. But mo mostly for them, it's a, it's a great gift. And so you can do that. Uh, a second thing you can do as an advocate is uh, be very uh, sensitive to what's in the media. Uh, a letter to the editor, uh, an op-ed piece, uh, a phone call. Uh, but you need to influence things so that uh, the media uh, are giving your uh, nonprofit a fair shake. And, and sometimes it takes that kind of, uh, you know, uh, arm twisting. So uh, all those things enable you to be an advocate. Squelch bad rumors, you know, things that aren't true. Uh, hype good news. For example, uh, here in uh, the Trinity Rep, over a million kids over the years, over, now this is Providence, Rhode Island. The entire population of the state is just under a million, I think. Over a million kids in Rhode Island over the last uh, 15, 20 years, whatever it's been, have been through Project Discovery which the uh, theater puts on for free, and these kids see, uh, see theater, discuss it in their classrooms. Uh, actors from the uh, acting company go into the classrooms and do some teaching. Uh, you know, it's just a marvelous thing, and, and Trinity is justifiably of, proud of it, but never really done enough with it to tell the public. And so uh, that's, what, that's what I mean by being an advocate. Okay, so, so going out there. And when you do advocate, I presume that you're being transparent and saying, by the way, I'm a board member of Trinity and, and letting people know that, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Otherwise, it's not very uh, appropriate. But yeah, you're, you're very uh, honest and accurate, and um, uh, there's nothing wrong with saying that you know not only are you a chairperson, but you're leading a certain effort or initiative. Yeah. Great. Now, one of the things you mentioned a little bit earlier was that you know with your travel schedule, you have to be in a, a board that would be flexible enough um, to allow you to miss a meeting if you had to travel. What do you feel is a board member's responsibility to stay up to date when you are out of town, something happens, you miss a meeting? What, what is it that, that's involved with that? Is it incumbent upon the member to, to do that? Should the board reach out and, and ensure that the board member is, um, is sufficiently updated? How does that work? Well, another issue with boards are minutes. And there should be a secretary, and there should be minutes then promptly after a meeting. Now, that's the should. Uh, often, that doesn't happen uh, until weeks later, and sometimes not at all. And sometimes they're not very helpful. Uh, but normally, you should get an email copy of the minutes within a few days, and you can apprise yourself easily uh, of what went on and what you missed. Uh, often, if you're a member of a given subcommittee or something, someone will actually contact you and say, here's what we decided, here's your responsibility. But that's the best way to keep up with it. I mean, I wouldn't be fanatic about it. There's no need to make phone calls and say what happened and who said what and so forth. But if the minutes are decent and you read them uh, you know, fairly um, quickly after you return, or even while you're on the road, given the electronics these days, uh, you'll keep yourself up to date. I think, too, uh, that um, uh, if you find that you're not going to make a lot of board meetings because you travel, I think you should always have an open offer to resign on the table, because uh, sometimes people might be reluctant to approach you. But um, you know, I just said to the parish council here, uh, you know, I've missed uh, two or three meetings because uh, my wife and I are doing a lot of traveling. And I said, yeah, I know, I know this messes up the logistics, and I know that uh, you know, I had no idea what there was no schedule announced when I volunteered to join, so I couldn't put it in my calendar. 
this is my life, though. Uh, so if it's if it's causing you a problem, let me know, and I'll be happy to step down, and give somebody else the the seat. And so I think you have to be reasonable about that, so that um, the organization can uh, continue with the best possible um, resources present. Got it. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, in terms of, uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the dynamics that happen on a board with different personalities, et cetera. What, what do you do if you've on, been on a board where they seem to be afraid to make a decision to move forward? You've either got this analysis paralysis or just too many issues or too many concerns. How do you help the group move forward through that? Well, there are two ways. One way is you just yell at them, which is what I do. Uh, and I say, look, we've been discussing this for two meetings, and I'm just not willing to come back to another meeting. So tell me right now, if you're going to discuss this next month, I'm not going to come out. I'm not going to come back. We have all the information we need. We need to make a decision. Now, I make a motion that, and that's right. The other way is to go to the person running the meeting, and you say to the chair, uh, look, uh, you know, this is before the meeting starts. Would you agree with me that we're wasting our time on this, we should be doing other things, and we need to call this to a question today? And if that person says, yeah, you know, Alan, you're right, I'm just not sure how to do it, I say, well, fine, here's how you do that. If they say, well, you know, I want everybody to have a chance, I say, look, it's one thing to give everybody a chance, it's another thing to give them a chance over and over and over again. And I've got to tell you, you know, I just can't sit here and, so you have to be that forward with it. And see, one of the reasons I think it's important to invest your time and your money is that they don't want to lose you. And they realize you're serious, yep. they realize you bring a certain amount of competence, they realize you bring a certain amount of financial support, bring a certain amount of contacts. And so they're reluctant to lose you. And that's, I mean, like anything else, the way you influence a board or anyone else uh, is about the power you use. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. Um, in, in terms of, we talked about some of the weaknesses that you've seen. What has been kind of the most frustrating experience for you, and, and how, what kind of advice would you give us if we ever got into that ex experience or how to deal with perhaps avoiding something like that? Well, the worst experience on the board is lousy leadership. The meetings okay. go nowhere, they're too long, they're boring, they don't accomplish anything, uh, deadlines aren't met, <laughs> fundraisers don't raise the right amount of money, uh, people leave because they're disgruntled, uh, there's not enough volunteers, I mean, so forth and so on. And that's all because of lousy leadership. Uh, and lousy leadership will damn any place, profit or nonprofit. And so you know, and the way I deal with that is I either uh, try to get that changed or I leave. Okay. How do you know when it's time to leave? If, if they're not accepting your, your comments, you're not seeing change, how much time do you give it? Well, for example, uh, I was on the ballet board. Uh, my wife and I were both on the board of the ballet here, and I was the vice president, which means you become president the following year. Uh, and I thought the board was pretty weak. And we, continue, and we had had uh, three successive bad presidents, in my opinion. Uh, they were good at other things, but not good at being president. And uh, the one I was um, following, uh, you know, we had a, we had a budget that came up, and I said at a board meeting, um, this budget makes no sense. We're going to be at least $80,000 short, and unless each one of you is willing to reach into your pockets and make that up, it's unethical to vote for this budget. Well, the budget passed 19 to 5. Five of us voted against it. <laughs> sure enough, the budget collapsed. And um, when the president said to me, you know, we, we need to talk about how you're going to take over next year, I said, I'm not. I'm going to finish out my term this year, finish my obligations, and I'm gone. I'm not serving with this board ever again. And what was the reaction to that? Were they shocked? Yeah, they were shocked. They were shocked. And, yeah, because uh, you know, I, I they, bet they, they didn't expect you to fall through on that. Well, yeah. they thought I'd be their savior. You know, they, they all, everybody right. looked at me and said, I'll go when Alan's president. But the problem is, you know, I am very fast running down a track. I am not very fast running down a track when I'm carrying 100 pounds of weight on my back and people are shooting at me. And so I tend to take cover. So, uh, you know, I, I don't have any kind of savior complex about me. 
if you want to at least give me your best effort, then I can probably help. But if you don't want to give me your best effort or you don't know how, then I don't have time in the day for that. Wow. So when you when you say, hey, I'm out of here, do you find that there's a reaction in terms of, of people trying to badmouth you or trying to put a bad spin from your perspective on what happened? Well, first of um, all, I don't care. <laughs> so okay. I, I never care what people say or think. I mean, there's no way to go through life. So you could say what you want, think what you want. I don't care. As long as it's not defamatory and actionable, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm running some kind of cocaine ring, uh, I, I don't give a damn. But what happens mostly is this, Linda. Uh, there, some people are shocked and they're surprised. And then other people are regretful. And they say, God, can't we get them to stay? What would it take? I mean, the artistic director did, you know, backflips to try to get me to change my mind. And he said, I'll change the board. I said, you don't have the power to change the board. Nice offer, <laughs> uh, but you don't have the power to change the board. Uh, and, but, you know, you, you don't do this as a bluff. You don't do this as some kind of, you know, bait and switch. Uh, you, you do it only if you mean it, and I meant it. And so that's why your ego can't be tied up in being on these boards. Your resume can't be tied up in being on these boards. You have to make honest life decisions about whether this is something that makes sense for you or whether it's so frustrating it's causing you stress. That's good. Now, you mentioned that you, you, you said the idea of term limits makes sense. What kind of timeline do you see for a term limit? How long do you think board service should be? Does it depend well, on the Well, I would say this. I would say that uh, for a member on a board, let's say it's a three-year term, I think you should be able to serve two three-year terms, and then you must take uh, a minimum of a year sabbatical, after which you could be reappointed, but you don't just automatically come back. You would have to be reappointed. Uh, secondly, I think for officers, uh, you can only serve as an officer uh, in a given position uh, for a year. Uh, and you can be reelected once. And so if you're the president, you can be reelected a second time or a treasurer or vice president, but that's it. Now you can change offices. And so if you're the vice president, uh, you can serve two years and become president. But uh, I, I uh, very much believe that you need to limit overall uh, tenure and you also need to limit uh, leadership tenure. How do you, if you are doing that and you need to find new blood and you're in a, a small market, whether it's Providence or somewhere else, how do you go find the right people? We talked about how a lot of people are, are very um, enthusiastic but not very competent, and then you get people who are there for political reasons. How do you go find that new blood on an ongoing basis? Well, how do you convince anyone? You have to show them it's in their best interest. So you have to make it an exciting place. You have to show that there's leadership that other people would want to be involved with. You have to show that the product you're turning out, whether it's uh, a dance, or uh, a symphony, or it's um, help for the homeless, or it's uh, help for people in, um, uh, in medical need, whatever it is, uh, is a vibrant part of the community and, and uh, necessary and worthwhile and supported and so on. Uh, I found here in Providence, in Rhode Island, uh, an astounding thing, and that is when you go to these fundraisers, uh, we all see the same people. You know, we're all the same mm. people. It could be a political fundraiser. Uh, a nonprofit fundraiser, you know, is a charity fund, whatever it is, we all see the same people. And, and many of us, you know, you can find us on the, on the lists and playbills of, you know, 12 different things. We're all contributing. But everybody does it. It's a very generous community, even up here in Rhode Island, uh, because people really believe in philanthropy. You know, I believe in giving, and a lot of people believe in giving who have been fortunate in life and who have been successful in life. So the question is, like any competition, how do you attract that person and that dollar to your cause? Uh, and you have to make a good case, and it's a relationship business, and so that's how you go out in the community and do it. So you have to have a cause that is um, is um, uh, attractive. You have to have um, a history of uh, success and solvency, and then you have to have people who can reach out and make a case for people like them. 
So you, you said that, um, I mean, and that all makes sense, and, and seeing the same people, and I think there, there's something about um, people want to be seen with those people, and they want to be associated with successful people, and, and, and part of this philanthropic effort. On the other hand, you get to the point where you can be on too many organizations just to be, as you mentioned, the checkoff, kind of like the Hispanic woman who was on every single board because she fit the criteria. Right. How do you know when you're on too many boards? Well, it's a question of your time, and it's a question of conflict. In other words, uh, if you're going to be fundraising, uh, and you suddenly you know, you've got a prime candidate in front of you to give funds, and you have to make a decision as to which organization to direct them toward, you've got a problem. You know, when I chaired the um, Newport International Film Festival, I had a big problem with two board members because they were involved, each of them, and each of them had money with two or three other organizations. And so where their own money went and where they solicited funds for uh, was not necessarily the film festival. And in fact, uh, we were probably number three on their list. And I didn't like that at all. I didn't like it one bit. Uh, and so I, I put a lot of pressure on them to do the right thing for us. Uh, and you find that sometimes. So uh, one criterion is, uh, am I having to make tough decisions about where the money goes? A second is, uh, you know, where am I getting the most kicks here? Where am I having the most fun? And where is it the most frustrating? And then the third is, what are the time demands? I mean, I, if, if you're going to... I've served effectively on three boards at once. That is, boards that met regularly. You know, I, mean, was, I was on a board up at Harvard that virtually never met, you know, wanted my opinion from time to time. And I mean, those are easy. But if you're on boards that meet regularly, three is about the maximum you can do. And um, you have to be very uh, careful about uh, your time and energy. That makes sense. Uh, one more question about, uh, about conflicts at all. You mentioned that you and Maria were both on the same board at the same time. Would, would, did that cause any kind of difficulty at all? Were there any times that you disagreed and had to work that out? Did you see any kind of conflict there? No, I don't think we ever voted against each other and canceled each other out. But I mean, we, the two of us certainly would have if we, if we saw the need. I think that there, there were three or four husbands and wives together on these, this particular board. And uh, it had the, the advantage that you, know, you were both in the same place. It was a family kind of commitment. Um, and, uh, you know, you got actually more involved because you were both intimate with what was going on there. Uh, the disadvantage is you don't quite make as much money. In other words, um, I w I'm happy to make a financial commitment, but if the two of us are on the border, I'm making it for the two of us combined, not for, you know, I'm not making two different ones for each of us. Uh, right. Some organizations have rules that a husband and wife can't serve on the board together, and I think that's legit, frankly. I think the organization has to make those decisions. But since in this case uh, they thought it would be beneficial, uh, that's fine with me. Okay. Great. So we have just a few minutes left um, as we're, we're starting to get to the end of our 50 minutes here. What I thought I'd, I'd ask you about is we've talked about some of the, the challenges and the frustrations, but tell us about some of the rewards. What has been one of the most gratifying experiences that you've had as a board member? Well, I think it's watching um, uh, a superb performance of, uh, of the Nutcracker or, you know, listening to uh, a wonderful um, symphony by Mozart or um, uh, seeing the, uh, an organization uh, able to raise enough money uh, to help people who are in very dire straits. Uh, I, I think that the impact on the community uh, is extraordinarily important. And I think, uh, you know, boards, the kind of boards we're talking about today, Linda, uh, nonprofits, are really cultural investments. Uh, they're investments in the welfare, what the Constitution would call the common wheel of the WEAL of the community. And uh, uh, it's, it's wonderful to see when they work right, 
that they're not constantly on the street begging for funds and destitute, you know, and uh, and and causing uh, you know more uh, problem than they're helping. But when they work right, and they're helping to alleviate societal ill conditions, uh, they're helping to enrich people uh, through education and entertainment and involvement. Uh, that's a wonderful thing, and. Um, you know, let's face it, uh, in the United States today, and, and in my experience also abroad, you know, if you take out the social welfare network that you see in Europe and places like that, the fact is that it's going to be more and more nonprofit individual giving and less and less government subsidy. That's the kind of stress that uh, Greece is going through right now, and Italy will too. Uh, less and less government subsidy and less and less corporate subsidy uh, that's going to help communities. You know, I just came back um, uh, yesterday from the Hound Hike here uh, for the East Greenwich Animal Protection League, and uh, Maria and I are, are the main sponsors, uh, which makes COFAX the main sponsor. Uh, and so there's an animal hospital, there's uh, animal um, you know, f uh, feed places and so forth, but they're all sub subordinate. Uh, we, the two of us are the main sponsors, uh, and we believe very much that uh, you don't put priorities and sequences on how you help people. In other words, you don't wait to help animals until all the streets are paved. You don't wait to help animals until everybody uh, you know, has a home. The fact is you do these things concurrently. That's what societies do. Uh, you have to provide help concurrently and not sequentially. Uh, and so when that happens and all members of society are helped to some degree, that's when nonprofits are working well. That's great. That's wonderful to hear. So from, a, from your own personal perspective, how has working all these nonprofits, how that help you personally uh, well, beyond being me. able to, to make things happen for other people? Well, it's helped me tremendously with my skills in terms of influencing, in terms of uh, decision-making, in terms of priority setting and conflict resolution. I mean, these are laboratories where you can put to good use with relatively low threat, not like facing a $200,000 client or prospect. Uh, you can put to good use your skills and see how they work and hone them and, and examine them. And that's, that's a great uh, byproduct of being on a board, is that if you're a consultant, as most people listening to this probably are, uh, you can really use your consulting skills and hone them and improve them, uh, and, and uh, that's been wonderful. And that's a, another question I was going to ask you. How is serving on a nonprofit board both similar or different than the way you would consult for just a regular for-profit client? Well, it's different because uh, with most consultants and most for-profit clients, they're not uh, at a board level. Uh, and so you've got a specific project and a specific buyer. You don't have a group of people involved. Uh, in decision-making, uh, it's, it's a much cleaner, stiletto-like operation. Uh, with a board, you know, it's more like a shotgun. So uh, it, it's much more difficult. Now, a for-profit board, we don't even have time to talk about today. That's, a, that's another animal altogether. So, uh, but it's very different from consulting within, say, you know, Boeing or IBM or Merck. Okay. Great. And then in terms of, if you, if you could give advice to, to us based on your, your career of, and, and your experiences over the last 20, 30 years of, of being uh, involved with all these boards, what would you tell us as kind of the, the final thoughts to leave us with here? Well, I would say that um, board membership, board uh, service, uh, I think is an important part of your growth and maturation. Uh, I think that we all get to a point in our careers where uh, we need to pay back. And nonprofit groups are a great way to pay back. Uh, I think that uh, they have the, uh, you know, a multitude of advantages uh, in terms of helping you to grow as an individual and helping uh, other people grow as individuals. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, that they're more and more important than ever before in the communities in which uh, we live. And that's why I believe in joining boards that are in the community uh, in which I live. 
So uh, be judicious in what you choose. Don't expect to stay there forever. Uh, and realize that uh, sometimes you serve best by opposing most. Uh, that is, you don't serve well simply by agreeing. Uh, you serve well by doing what you think in your heart of hearts is best. Sometimes you serve best by opposing most. That's powerful. That's powerful. And I think that's a great note to finish on. So, Alan, in, in uh, terms of giving back, I want to thank you for giving back to all of us and sharing your experiences. And I'm going to turn this back over to, um, to Kathy, who I think is going to have some final comments. Well, thank you, Alan. That was wonderful. And, you know, I really appreciate everything you said. I work with a lot of nonprofits myself, and everything was really provocative, and uh, we appreciate all of that you put into this. So to everyone on the call, we've come to the end of our time today, and we hope you've really enjoyed this presentation by Dr. Alan Weiss. And this also concludes our teleseminar series, and we hope you've really benefited from the vast information presented in our last seven sessions. And, and I hope you agree with us that serving on nonprofit boards is good business. So I'd again like to thank our presenter today, Alan Weiss of the Summit Consulting Group and the Society of Advancement of Consulting. And I'm going to just give a special thank you to all of our outstanding presenters from our nonprofit affinity group of SAC for creating and offering this superb series. And I just give them a little shout out right now, and that's Linda Popke, who's been our wonderful interviewer today from Leverage to Market Associates, Laura Makuska from the Makuska Group, Karen Eber Davis, Karen Eber Davis Consulting, Dr. Terry Temkin, Core Strategies for Nonprofits, Elizabeth De Clifford, De Clifford International, and myself, Kathy Kingston with Kingston Auction Company. To close, we'd again, Alan, thank you so much for your wonderful support of this project. Thanks. Thanks to all of you for what you've done. I appreciate being with you.